What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to another episode of Bloomberg Intelligence's Vanguards of Healthcare podcast, where we speak with the leaders at the forefront of change in the healthcare industry. My name is Jonathan Palmer, and I'm a healthcare analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, the in-house research arm of Bloomberg. We're very excited to have Othman Laraki, co-founder and CEO of Color Health, joining us here today. His background is in technology. He worked at Google before co-founding Mixer Labs, which was acquired by Twitter. At Twitter, he was the VP of product management before leaving to start Color, a health delivery company. Uh, thank you for joining us here today. Why don't we get started uh, with a very high-level overview of what Color Health does? All right, is it even called Color Health at this point? I, I know you've had some name changes along the way, but you know, wh- what do you got? What does Color do, and, and what problem do you solve in the, the marketplace? Yeah, well, th- thank you for having me. Um, so yeah, we are called Color Health. Uh, we uh, initially used to be called Color Genomics, and I'm sure we'll talk about the the uh, origin story there. But um, what Color does today is that we focus on delivering uh, care programs, both in the public sector as well as for large uh, self-insured employers. Um, our business is about half in the public sector, and the other half is in uh, uh, with large employers. Um, and in both of those contexts, we focus on areas where you need to serve large populations for specific disease areas or specific outcomes. And we integrate all the layers that today are tend to not be integrated in healthcare, which are mm-hmm. how it gets paid, who your doctor is, how the, where you get the diagnostics, and how the medications get delivered. And so we deliver programs that connect all of those together. So in the public sector, it tends to be much more infectious disease oriented. So we work uh, a lot with, uh, we did a lot of work during COVID. Um, all the way from testing to vaccinations to me- medication delivery, um, and now around other infectious diseases like HIV, uh, hepatitis C. Um, on the employer side, it's again focused on the top priorities, which tend to be cancer and cardiovascular health. And there we again like look at it in a vertically integrated manner. And how do you take services where you need, for example, um, people to be up to up to date in all their cancer screenings? And we integrate all those together into one single program that take, where the goal is to take all the friction out for people so they can actually avail themselves of the opportunities that are uh, in their uh, in their plan or offered by their employer or their uh, That's interesting. If, if I think about the, a case study for an employer, I mean, if, if you came into Bloomberg and were, were offering these services, what, what does that pitch look like and what does that sales cycle look like? Yeah, so um, for employers, it's effectively an enterprise sales cycle. Um, so, you know, it, it'll range... Uh, it's pretty broad range, so it'll range anywhere from uh, from a month to a year, uh, uh, depending on the employer, the constraints they're under, and so on. Um, what the pitch really looks like, uh, for example, we recently announced our partnership with the American Cancer Society um, around uh, cancer screening and prevention, so it's a fully integrated program around that. And the way the pitch w- looks and works is that um, you know, cancer today, especially after the pandemic, is tends to be the number one cost for the majority of large employers. And if it's not number one, it'll be in the top you know, two or three. Um, and usually representing somewhere in the 12, 15% of total cost of care. Most of the cost today is concentrated in treating disease. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, and, and a lot of that is in late stage disease. But when you look at the last 20 years of history of cancer, um, almost all of the reduction in mortality and progress has been made um, not where we think it is, not in the place where the cost has gone up, but rather A, in smoking cessation, mm-hmm. and B, in earlier detection of cancer. Um, when you look at late-stage disease, we have made relatively low pro- little progress in reducing actual mortality. We have made a lot of progress in extending how long people can survive with a stage four cancer, um, but not actually improved end-to-end survival for, mm-hmm. for, for those people. Um, and but the other surprising thing that I think a lot of people don't oftentimes realize is that 
for a lot of employers, you know, there, there's been a huge success between the Affordable Care Act and all the work by employers to have a lot better coverage for screening and prevention. So mm-hmm. today, most large employers cover mammographies, colonoscopies, you know, CT scans, people have risk of lung cancer and so on. But the adherence rate is still pretty low. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, actually, most employers don't even have the data to know uh, what, how, what kind of uh, compliance the, the, you know, their employees are, are, are getting. But then in addition, that we, well, we've succeeded cover- in coverage, we have not succeeded in access. Mm-hmm. And in how do you make these services really accessible for people in a way that they really utilize them to prevent late-stage disease? Um, and the reason why that's important is that, you know, stage four cancer is, you know, six to eight times more deadly than an early-stage cancer. Um, and usually the costs are, you know, several multiples delta. And we already have the tools, so we have coverage for mammographies and colonoscopies mm-hmm. and so on that do deliver very a very big impact in earlier detection, but we have not actually succeeded getting enough adherence to move the needle as much as we could. And so for in terms of how we talk with the two employers for these cases is like, that is the single biggest lever you have in, in your single biggest cost mm-hmm. item, uh, you know, co- line of cost in, in, uh, in care. And you don't need more coverage. You don't need more services in your plan. What you need to do is to drive utilization, and we can help with that. There's a lot to unpack there, and I think two things that came to mind is, you know, one of the things that I think about when I think about employer-based uh, insurance and, and payment models is that just the portability and, mm-hmm. and tracking people longitudinally over over the course of their, their treatment. And so how do you guys think about that that paradox of, you know, I, I might get a cancer screening here today for yeah. prostate cancer, but six months from now I'm somewhere else. You know, what are the, some of the tools that you put in place to maybe make that portable? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, that's a great question. You know, it's kind of interesting, like the, um, that kind of, the, the question is effectively like the time horizon question, right? Like during our lifetime, in the U.S., especially because we don't have a single payer or kind of a government payer for everyone, um, we every individual will go between different plans. And so no one wants to be on the, you know, paying today to make you healthier and less expensive 10 years from now. Um, and that tends to be the case, especially, I think, that is a bigger problem, I think, for example, around cardiovascular health, for example, managing mm-hmm. cholesterol and so on. Um, which itself is also, I think, a very big area and big opportunity. But in cancer, what's interesting is that, you know, it is a relatively nonlinear progression, right? Like when someone is progressing in stages of cancer, it is not a, sometimes some cancers can take 10 years or, mm-hmm. or longer, but the ones that are actually going to drive your costs, you're talking about, you know, the the year time frame is actually very meaningful. And sometimes even a few month del- months of Delta make a pretty big difference in both costs and outcomes. And so I think with cancer in particular, with screening, that has a much bigger impact. For things like smoking cessation, you could say, okay, maybe the returns on that are longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, for example, we work with a lot of like unions, for example, um, where, you know, they have people, the same people on their books for a very right, long that's time. That's going to be pretty sticky. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think in general, I mean, the, you know, for individual prevention tools, et cetera, there might be different time horizons on which they they pay off. But like cancer screening in particular is actually one where, you know, a lot of the return of getting people to be adherent um, are within that time horizon for most employers, you Mm -hmm. know, unless you're turning people over, you know, in a year. Um, You know, if you're, most employers that we work with tend to have, you know, at least a three-year average tenure. Um, And all of the cancer screening numbers fit within that uh, pretty, Mm -hmm. pretty healthily. You you sit in a unique uh, in a unique spot just given where the company's been in the past, and I guess the question I want to ask is around liquid biopsy because I think mm-hmm. as we think about the adherence problem, you know that solves a lot of it. Uh, what's your views on the you know uptake of that technology and those tests, and and do you think there's enough clinical utility, and where are we in the that equation of price versus benefit for, yeah. for those tests? Yeah, I mean, so personally, I'm really excited about the liquid biopsy opportunities, and I think it just kind of inject so much data into the system that um, I think can draw detection even earlier. Um, I think the we are still at the very early innings of that. Like, you know, I mean, just to put in perspective, I'll maybe just give you a few statistics about like the, the so today we're in a state where liquid biopsies are still relatively expensive. Um, and also the um, specific, spe- both the combination of specific, specificity mm-hmm. and sensitivity um, 
is makes different ones still relatively difficult to utilize in a clinical context. Like if you go with one of those tests to an average doctor, it's pretty hard for them to know deterministically what to do with them. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, you know, if you look at uh, lung cancer, so, you know, one of the largest sources of mortality, biggest Mm -hmm. source of cost in in our, in our system, um, there today, um, you know, about only about 14% of people um, who gets, get uh, a lung cancer diagnosis are detected as stage one. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them are detected late. And that's also partially why we tend to think of lung cancer as a death sentence because it tends to be detected pretty late. For uh, people who have high risk, either because they were smokers or even if they had occupational health exposure like, um, like firefighters mm-hmm. or carpenters and so on, who should be getting regular CT scans, um, if they are adherent, for those populations, that 14% moves up to 45%. Um, so you have a 3x increase in people who have a, a seventh the mortality mm-hmm. and save a quarter million dollars per person. That's pretty massive. Yeah, and so I mean, and also the perspective on that is like, that has a bigger impact than any drug that I think has ever existed in the history of cancer, right? Like just from getting people screened for lung cancer at the right time. And I mean, the amazing thing on one side is that we already have won the battle of coverage. Mm -hmm. By now there is no debate about that, right? Like that is covered for pretty much all populations in the US. Um, If you have high risk, you can get your CT scans and there are a lot of centers that are available, but only 6% of people who should be getting those screens get them today, Mm -hmm. right? So moving on that 6%, so it's like 96% of people are not doing it who are at risk. And that is not a um, uh, a financial gap. It's not a very difficult procedure, you know. Um, it is truly a, a friction and access gap. Like one of the things we've learned in all of our work on the public health side, so, you know, so a lot of the work that Color has done is on the kind of large public and population health. And, you know, so less two or three years, we've done uh, clo- over 35 million tests or vaccines or uh, medication deliveries to people. And there's a huge, I think, um, uh, I think uh, misconception, which is that for underserved communities or less affluent communities and so on, that it is primarily an education and um, uh, like a priority gap, mm-hmm. right? Like it's always, you're not doing these things just because it's not a priority. What we found is that that is patently false. Like everyone wants to be healthy. Um, what is really where the gap really shows up is that for health, types of healthcare that are more elective, or not, not, I don't think elective is even the right word. It's like for forms of healthcare that can be that are not urgent today. Like if you know if if you break a leg or if you you know uh, have a big infection, you have to go to the hospital mm-hmm. to see the doctor. It's no longer on your terms, and everyone will go. For things like a mammography, a CT scan, managing your cholesterol, these are all things where that are not painful physically <laughs> to delay. Uh, and so what ends up happening is that those those forms of healthcare are extremely vulnerable to the frictions of daily life, right? Mm-hmm. Like so to tell an hourly worker, hey, go get a colonoscopy, but you know, most people today don't even have a PCP. And even if they do, they might not even have a relationship that's easy. It might take months to just go see a PCP to get the referral to go get their colonoscopy, mm-hmm. right? And so, and then take hours off work, travel multiple, you know, hours or potentially right. for a lot of friction in that model, right? Yeah, there. exactly. So, like on all different avenues, the employer side, the transportation exactly. side, like all of that is like it's like load of friction that is why people don't end up doing it. And you know, it's like, and we've we've seen this, you know. So my background is is a I'm a software and the technology entrepreneur, uh, colors my first my first thing I do in healthcare, and I guess I've been doing it for ten years now, so I can't <laughs> pretend that I'm a healthcare outsider You're anymore. anymore. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, but the but the lessons that we've learned in large consumer applications is that the easiest way to make anyone do anything is not to try to cajole them or to scare them or to bribe them. It's literally to make it lower friction. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why we have a search box in the browser. Actually, I worked on that when I was at Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why we have uh, you know one-click checkout on Amazon. It's why we take rides on Uber. Right. Like it's why I listen to music on Spotify. Mm-hmm. It's like the transactional friction is the most effective way to drive human behavior, 
And we have not done that in the parts of healthcare where you want to actually, where everyone agrees that that's a behavior that we want. And there's a huge, both human and economic reason to do that. Um, and, and that's at the heart of everything we do at Colors. Like literally that's the lens through which we look at everything we do is like, how do you take away the transactional friction for individuals? Um, that's why like a lot of what we do is like taking healthcare and making it show up as part of people's lives. Like we, you know, run some of the, run some of the biggest like programs for, you know, vaccines in African-American churches during the pandemic. We, you know, take types of screening or, you know, prevention into the employer mm-hmm. so that, you know, when you are walking into the office, you can, without scheduling, without, you know, any pre-planning, just kind of take advantage of, you know, the foot traffic to get people engaged. And those we found to be some of the most effective ways to to get the behavior that you want is whether whether it's digitally or literally physically, mm-hmm. how do you make healthcare show up? Um, I think is one of the you know biggest opportunities that uh, you know I think when we look back at applying some of the lessons we learned from all the other aspects of our lives and you know apply them to, to healthcare, I think that uh, in retrospect probably will, be, will feel that it was pretty obvious and not like some like big novel new idea because we've seen it work like you know a hundred times you know over uh, in the last like 20 years you mentioned something about uh well you, you were talking about the, the the public side of your business and and i guess that maybe made me think about how you're able to step into that gap at that crucial time during the pandemic and and why were you so well positioned to to provide those public health services does it relate to back to having a lab and and being having a clear lab and being authorized yeah, you know, so it's not the CLIA lab itself, but it's actually the integration of the different layers. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I think today, you know, you have a completely separate entity that's your payer. Actually, in fact, like that, even that is fractured, right? Like you have your PBM, you have your TPA, like, you know, you have the, the payer layer is already like, you know, itself a separate layer and fractured. Then you have your care delivery, like your doctors who, you know, they're trying to like you know deal with all of the you know craziness of modern life. Um, then the pharmacy, and then your diagnostic labs, and then all those being completely separate makes it really difficult to do things where you want to streamline the flow between all of them, especially for things where you, dri- you want to drive high utilization and mm-hmm. minimize the f- the friction from the individual standpoint. Like you know, from you know, and I think I actually that's also what, what's so attractive in what we do for employers is that I think it's going into the spirit of the value-based care model, which is mm-hmm. not value-based in the sense of like capitation and just reshuffling how, where the dollars go and who, you know, captures the money, but rather, you know, what what are you actually truly buying? Mm-hmm. Are you buying the pieces? Or are you buying the thing, right? Like, you know, the, you know, do, should you, if some, if you're managing cholesterol for someone, there's one world that we exist in today where you buy separately the guy who sells you the ability to buy <laughs> the TPA <laughs> and the PBM, right. you're you're buying the entity that sells you the clinical oversight. You're buying separately the the entity that sells you the test, and then separately the the medication. And in reality, for managing cholesterol, it is truly a commodity end to end, right? Like none of the either decisions or costs or medications or tests are super expensive or very complicated. But when you stack in all of the friction that's necessary for all those to connect, right? Like for your doctor to get paid, they need a, a visit. So you have they make you show up so that you can talk to a doctor. So they prescribe a statin, right? Like, and I think what we think is like really the the big opportunity in these things is that you you the the purchaser can buy the service that is to reduce cholesterol in the population, to manage cholesterol mm-hmm. in the population. That is the outcome, right? Like that is the value that both the purchaser as well as the individual wants, wants to buy, I think. And, and that's really kind of where a lot of our work goes is, you know, when we think about, for example, cancer screening and prevention, it is not about, you know, separating out all the different layers, but rather the outcome is that you, you want to know, A, how well you're doing mm-hmm. in your uh, adherence to standard guidelines, and then by adherence to those guidelines, right? Like that is the thing that, you know, I think... Um, is the value that, um, you know, a market should be purchasing and where I think the real, you know, one of these kind of, I feel like in a lot of industries over time, one of the most interesting effects of technology and the opportunities of technology is this kind of, this 
change of horizontal to vertical integration, and it kind this of this was like, going to be my question. Okay, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's kind of uh, because it, I think you know you've 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 seen it in a lot of other industries, right? You go from all these like layers that create just a terrible uh, you know experience for people, very poor cost proposition, mm -hmm. right? And then they get reintegrated into these more vertical verticalized applications um, that both end up being better value in the sense that you're actually you know you're not buying you know have, having to buy the entire album you're buying the song you want to listen to mm -hmm. right like or the minutes of listening right uh and so i think that's kind of the the in some ways i think uh the potential for a different business model a different way to approach these services where you want to buy outcomes right um so sorry for for no, uh, for, no, uh, you, for jumping ahead on your not, question not at all <laughs> no but you it was something that you said that made me think about you know can you think of examples because we are seeing more vertical integration across mm -hmm. the space and i mean a lot of the big service companies are are playing in areas where they didn't traditionally play yeah I mean, united's everywhere just yeah. for, for example i mean we see cvs delving into different places do you think any of these incumbents are doing it well in in, in any maybe specific use cases Short answer, no. Frankly, I think I think so, and, and I'll, I'll tell you why, uh, or at least my opinion on why. Uh, and you know, maybe I'll, I'll I'll get in trouble with with my team for kind of uh, kind of uh, being so so blunt on this. But like, I think fundamentally, I think one of the deepest issues we have in American healthcare is that we we have a, a kind of an industry that self organizes in when you zoom out in a way that looks like monopolies, that because really what we've done is that we have created an environment where you know the the, the control of the bank account or the you know mm -hmm. as, the kind of um, uh, the account right like um, where the money is held with the network and allowing that to happen like if you think about like any other industry that functioning marketplace. Those tend to be a bit separate, like you know the custodian of value from your actual, you know, ability to make purchasing decisions. You know, if you're if you have your bank account with Bank of America, Bank of America is separate from Visa. If Bank of America owned the network, and they could decide they they thought it was part of their job to decide where you can buy coffee. Um, I know you where know, you're going here, right? Like, so you know exactly <laughs> what I'm where I'm going with this, right? Like. That is, you know, that is what we have in healthcare in the U.S. And I think the side effect of that is that all of the rents of the industry get pulled up into the the kind of the, the the account, the kind of the custodian layer, and takes it away from the ability to transact. You don't have a vi it kills the vibrant um, services layer, which is really what you want, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, in the U.S., about twenty five percent, so twenty percent of the GDP of, of healthcare, right? Like everyone talks about that all the time. We talk about much less is that a quarter of that is in transaction overhead, right? Like in retail, we spend 3% in exchanges, end-to-end you know, -end to, to buy something on your credit card. In healthcare, in the US, a quarter of that value is captured by a sets of layers that have nothing to do with the service you're actually buying, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that is, I think, at the heart of, I think, what, and so to your question about the incumbents, I think right now, all the power is aggregated is in the the, the the kind of the the payers quote unquote but the problem is that because they own the network i think it is much more kind of a you know they're not monopoly expansion to, right to push costs down right? yeah and it's also kind of like it's kind of just more vertically integrating that kind of like uh lack of uh access in some sense um that i think is going to make the problem worse than better because you know well the costs are going up, the services are getting worse, um, but they're getting even more consolidated uh, in a way that makes a competitive market even more difficult. Um, so I think that is actually the, you know, the biggest problem well, in my you, mind. You see a lot of the bigger companies uh, talk about uh, value-based care and mm -hmm. that that's gonna be the solution for, for a lot of these frictions. Yeah. Do, do you believe that? Or, or, or I mean, I think in theory, everybody agrees that value-based care yeah. is a, a good thing, but where do you see it in practice actually working out well or, or what has to happen? Who has to be incentivized yeah. in what way? So, so I believe in the spirit of it, right? Like it's kind of the, the, the notion that, you know, really connecting the thing you're buying to the value you want to get, right? Like an, um, and pushing um, incentives down. What I think is not great about our current implementation of that notion is that we have effectively given that... Um, the, the the power of that 
um, to in the kind of at the top layer um, to the insurance companies, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just giving them just a different way to calculate, but in an environment where they're still capturing all the rents, right? Like at the end of the day, today, even if in a value-based care model as it's currently implemented today, and, and if you show up with the best, like you know, cholesterol reducing program in the world, it is actually very difficult to have a marketplace to compete in. Right, and that's that. I think is partially what uh, mm-hmm. you know, where our current implementation doesn't work very well, is that it's um, in some ways I think reshuffling. Uh, it almost feels more like a planned economy attempt, okay. <laughs> uh, as opposed to what would be a uh, an actual competitive market approach to doing that. Um, I, I have a I have a blog post that I haven't posted yet that I can I can share with you for. I can't wait to find interesting. <laughs> so if you think about some of these marketplaces, and, and I guess maybe as I think about some of the disease categories or chronic conditions, you know, there's a lot of people going after uh, cardio. There's yeah. a lot of people going after metabolic and diabetes. You know, do you feel like these programs work well when they're constructed correctly? And, and do you have to put something at risk versus just maybe a fee-for-service model, like when you're implementing some of these with an employer, let's say? Yeah. I mean, first of all, actually, the... the I don't know when or why that the term fee for service was put into opposition with value, um, because you know there are a lot of aspects. I think value is derivative of a competitive market, not of the risk, the format in which risk is pooled or shared, mm-hmm. right? Like you know your relationship with Amazon is a fee for service relationship, right? Like you want something, you pay for it and you get it, right? Like, but it's a very high value, right? Like they came and they made a product that was very competitive and you can order a CD or, uh, you know, I guess in the old days or, you know, tube of toothpaste today or medication (laughs) as we were talking earlier. And it just shows up, right? Like, and that is fee for service, but is very high value in the sense of the the competitiveness of the value you're getting from them for the money you're paying. Um, And so the, so I think that opposition, I think is actually not that helpful in the sense of I think it is actually fine to have places where people are paying for specific transactions uh, in a very kind of clear and transparent mm-hmm. and non-risk-bearing way. Um, and But then kind of having ways to aggregate and capitate out risk, mm-hmm. um, I think does make sense, right? Like, you know, there have been a number of, I think, reasonably good um, cases come out of that where like, for example, pregnancy has been one that where it's, there've been some pretty good outcomes, right? Like, but again, like these are relatively isolated and they're all happening in kind mm-hmm. of, um, little pockets as opposed to an environment where a winning model actually succeeds at winning across the industry. Right now it's like, you know, you even if you have something that works well, it's a, you have to boil the ocean with every single payer and every single mm-hmm. geography, right? Like, and that makes it really hard for the service layer to be competitive, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of... Well, and there's a transparency factor, which you mentioned yeah. as well. I mean, yeah, you exactly. and I will pay very different things for generic Lipitor, depending on who our plan yeah. is. And let's not even get started about what surgeries cost. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and even the fact that, right, like, you know, even today you're seeing like a very big trend. In some ways, it's part of some of the work that we do, which is like, you know, for service providers, just to not need to deal with reimbursements kind of rigmarole, they're they are willing to give like 50 plus percent discounts for cash pay if you're you know like you provide a service and you get paid in a timely way with no risk that's actually very valuable to people right and so that's in some ways it's kind of like similar to the kind of cash pay model for generics right mm-hmm. like it's kind of the transaction overhead far outweighs the actual thing you're getting the cost of the thing you're getting so you might as well just pay for it directly and so um I think in some ways allowing those models to compete out the utilization of a heavy system um, where it's not helpful. I think you know, like in reality, right? Like when you think about insurance, like like the the fact that today we think of insurance as the way we pay for healthcare in general, you know, it doesn't really make sense because like the as a there are some places where the term literally insurance, right? Like it's kind of they're for unpredictable high cost events that you don't want that you want to socialize, right? So and if, it's ex post. Yeah, exactly right. Like it's exposed. You you can't predict. You can't predict it. Once it happens, you want to. Uh, and the so there's a set of part of healthcare that totally makes sense to be in that mode. Um, but then like there are whole other parts of healthcare, like all prevention and screening. I think is actually the opposite. Like the relationship of mammographies and risk, right? Like you know the fact that we think of mam- mammographies as a insurance paid service 
makes no sense, right? Like your risk is actually the opposite. Your risk is that the mogfies, not that they happen, but that they not happen, mm-hmm. right? And the only reason right now we're munging them into this payments model is that lack of transparency, right? Like is that, you know, and that just comes at a huge cost, both in terms of, uh, you know, convenience for people, as well as actual, like, you know, literally how much they cost in, uh, relative to if it was a competitive open market. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry to go on that tangent, no, but it's uh, that, an area wonderful. that <laughs> you know. In, in thinking about your your business, you know, we we've talked a lot of we spent a lot of time, I think, on on the employer side, and uh, some of the work you're doing around oncology. You know, I think one area that is just very uh, curiosity for me is the genomics piece, and, mm-hmm. and you know, that's I think the original basis of yeah. the company. And and when you originally started the company, what what hole in the marketplace did you see in yeah. genomics? I mean, so the roots of the company, you know, were so I'm I uh, have a fair amount of cancer history in my family. Uh, my my grandmother passed away from breast cancer. My mother survived two of them. I'm sorry. And uh, and the, and the, and then um, and then I we my mother and I both found out that we are carriers of a mutation in a gene called BRCA2 bracket mm-hmm. two, which um, increases women's risk of breast and ovarian cancer. As also a number of uh, increases in risk of cancer for men as well. And at the time, those tests used to cost five thousand dollars. Sure, and when Myriad Genetics had the patents on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it, and it took me like uh, five different doctor's appointments to you know get my test done and get my results back. And you know, looking back, it was like, wow, this was a could be an order of magnitude cheaper, and also could be an order of magnitude more convenient. And so that was the first product of colors to do, you know, uh, cancer and cardiovascular risk screening. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, using genetics and personal family health history, but make it, I mean, literally we put on the mark when the other tests were $5,000, ours was 250, 250 bucks. So 20, 20 X cheaper. Um, and also, but also part of our thinking and goal on that was how do you collapse all those interactions? Those, those five doctor visits were as expensive to me as the, as mm-hmm. the money was. And so we wanted to turn that into a service that really felt integrated. And you know, where you were not buying a gener- two genetic counselor visits and a doctor's appointment mm-hmm. and a lab visit and so on, and so we bundled all of that into two hundred fifty dollars, um, and made a product that just made genetics very simple and very accessible. And now it's actually like you know, I think it really drove the you know a lot of folks to reduce their cost and mm-hmm. start incorporating additional services. Um, and so for us, the lesson there was like really learning you know how much like over time, realizing that the most interesting things we, we were doing a lot of really interesting things in the lab and in the genetic side, but by far actually, I think the care delivery side was a, in some ways more impactful mm-hmm. and also very translatable to a bunch of other areas. And so, you know, that led us, for example, to apply that same model for the NIH through, they have a program called the All of Us program. It's yep. the biggest genetics study in the I'm world. Signed up. You're signed up. <laughs> great. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's actually exciting. Like the uh, you know now the you know results are starting to roll out, and so it's uh, great to see. And and so in that program, so Color is the one of the main like software and technology providers for it, uh, but also we're responsible for the all the a lot of the interactions that the participants get, but also the clinical services they get as part of it. Because at the time, for example, the question that the NIH had was like, how do I do? Uh, I think at the time there were like five thousand genetic counselors across the entire United States. And they're trying to figure out like how do we offer genetic counseling to a million people in all 50 states and all these remote areas, and they used our our our, our system for that. And you know now it's probably the high, largest scale genetic counseling service uh, you know around. Um, and but for us it was realization like how much of the kind of these services that feel scarce are really scarce because of the way we package them and all of the overhead that we bundle into mm-hmm. that delivery. And so by you know just rethinking that stack and how the pieces connect, you can just take a huge amount of the overhead out of out of the system. Like our, our genetic counselors that are working this program are able to have about seven times the number of patients that an average genetic counselor in a clinic can get, right? Like where today what's if you- the, What's the driver behind that? Um, all the documentation for insurance, um, all of the EMR back and forth, mm-hmm. uh, scheduling overhead, uh, physical proximity, right? Like, you know, if you're, you know, at New York Presbyterian, your catchment area is like, you know, how far is people, are people willing to travel, right? right. Uh, and so you're, there's a lot of kind of loss of capacity that happens from all of those pieces to coincide. 
Um, whereas with us, like, you know, you know, if you try to schedule a GC session, you know, local, in most local health, health systems, it'll take you about usually four to five weeks to get an appointment. Um, you know, our kind of average is about 48 hours. So, you know, and so kind of how do you create that level mm -hmm. of availability? Because, you know, a genetic counselor in Nebraska, if they have the right licensure, can serve you tomorrow, mm -hmm. right? Like, right. And, and that just creates a flat market in some sense for people who can deliver services. Um, so you almost created a marketplace for genetic counseling services. Exactly, right? Like it's kind of taking that model of like, you know, the, 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 it flattens the kind of the, the market where it's like, you know, you don't have, you don't have like a million tiny markets. You mm -hmm. can have, you know, one single large national one um, or with licensure, you know, up to, you know, 50, but in reality, like, you know, you can actually consolidate them quite a mm -hmm. bit. So you end up with, you know, just a handful of kind of like, you know, four or five, like big pools of people that can serve most of the country. And, um, and so now we're just applying that model to everything else. So for example, you know, with cancer screening and prevention, it's a lot of the same problem, it turns out, right? Like it's kind of, if I tell you, you know, you, you just show up. the same up, playbook that you put in place exactly. on the genetic side and, and just switch yeah. it over to oncology. Exactly, switch it over to oncology for, you know, screening that can be taken to the home, as well as screening that where you need to be in person. Like if I go and tell you, oh, you know, you've, you, you know, in, you've uh, you've been a carpenter your entire career, so you should be getting your annual CT scan. So first of all, most people, a lot of people who would be in that category might not even know that. So first of all, making sure they know it. But then the friction for you to, oh, now you need to go find a PCP because you probably don't mm -hmm. have one. So, you know, good luck with that, you know, and, uh, you know, and then from there you need to go, they, you know, find one that actually will provide the referral and so on. And so just bundling all of those into these kind of like very simple services where it's like, oh, you know, you need to get your annual CT scan, um, just answer three questions. How far from your house are you willing to travel? Mm -hmm. um, what are days of and times of the week that tend to be convenient for you? And send me a picture of your insurance card if you haven't done so already. And we just take care of everything. So it's like we find we provide the referral, we find the locations, we give you a few options, we schedule it for you. If you need, you know, transportation to be coordinated, we're happy to do that mm -hmm. as well. Just take collapse all of the friction that's in in the way of that gets in the way of you actually doing it. Um, I think is you know a big factor there. And and actually another dimension of this that you know we're really excited about is you know you know the the in this administration, the you know the cancer moonshot mm -hmm. project has been started during the Obama administration, and then got really kind of uh, you know re rebooted in a big way um, right now. And you know there's a you know a lot of um, I think you know willingness and interest in partnering with industry and in, with large employers as playing a key role here because you know when you think about the parts of healthcare that need to show up in our life, like you know, where does your life happen, right? Like it happens at home, your kids' schools, your workplace, you know, some like social aggregation points like churches, right? Like that's that's kind of it, right? Like those mm -hmm. are the big places so where society happens. Right there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So, and so it's kind of what are, and, and then so your the employers not only provide the financial coverage, right? Like for half of the country, but they also are the place where, you know, people's lives actually happen and there's also a very big like social proof and trust relationship there mm -hmm. right like and obviously there you know there's a big spectrum of like you know relationships between employers and their employees but like it is i i think it's it's likely to be very rare that uh uh people have a better relation a better relationship with their health insurance plan than with their employer, or their union, right? Like, and so if there's a participant that can really move the needle there, I think you know that that is one of the big ones. So. How unique do you think your your technology overlay is? I mean, because I've I've heard this similar stories. I mean, yeah. do you go down to the level of starting to triage patients and actually push them down this avenue or the other based yeah. on maybe symptoms or lab scores or whatever totally. it might be? Yeah, you know, I think so. So far, there's you know, I think the two main strategies that have been employed. Have been on one hand, there's, um, and really, actually, they both kind of agree into what people today call care navigation. Mm -hmm. That just take different flavors, right? Like there's kind of one version of care nav, which is how do I help someone make sense of the mess that we have on our hands? That's one, mm -hmm. <laughs> one version, uh, and then the other version that tends to be sometimes blended in is kind of like more steerage, where you're like, oh, you know, you. Maybe this person does not need, you know, knee surgery. Let's get them to PT. Or, mm -hmm. you know, maybe this person shouldn't get their cancer treated. Uh, you know, a really marquee, like you know, 
cancer center like you know MSK because it's a very simple you know early stage cancer, so it can be mm-hmm. treated you know in a less expensive location. And th- these those have tended to be the most like common strategies, which by the way, I think actually are very reasonable. What we do, I think that's quite different, is that we really focus on the kind of upstream part. Um, the, the latter version that you know a lot of people do today kind of is quite rational because that's where all the money is today. What we do is we really focus on far upstream, where today not a lot of spend is necessarily going, but where we think there's that is the place where you have the, the biggest lever on, on long-term impact and um, mm-hmm. both outcomes as well as costs. And so, um, uh, and then the other, th- other aspect about both, especially how we work with the American Cancer Society is we're not just telling people what to do, but actually actually delivering services directly to people. Um, and so um, really kind of integrating those pieces so that you're, you know, we are the entity that people are interacting with and getting those services from us. So, you know, if you think about your journey and your evolution, I, I don't know if there was ever an inflection point where you kind of moved away from the the genomics business to expand into yeah. the broader services arena. But, you know, was there an inflection point? And then I guess the the, the follow on to that is, you know, I, I've seen based on Crunchbase that you've raised some money over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Is, is that to drive uh, some of those newer models and services? Uh, it was. Those have been a bit orthogonal. In fact, actually, like a lot of the you know we've um, uh, a lot of our f- fundraisers over time have actually been you know much more driven yeah in a way to kind of increase our ability to build great mm-hmm. infrastructure. But the you know I think the main inflection points have been like you know how sometimes when you do something well as a team, the specificity of that gets very much into your identity. So for example, like our very first version of our GenX product was cancer genetics, and we were very good at that. And we thought of ourselves as a cancer genetics company. And when we decided to add cardiovascular genetics in there, even internally, we had a huge amount of like, you know, heartburn about that. It's like, are we, you know, leaving our roots? Is this that? I and like then you the really, words there. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, you know, and, and like the, you know, the, the and what, what's been interesting to learn over time is that, you know, really, what are we about? And I think it's really about, you know, Delivering great healthcare, and you know, delivering it in a in a way that rethinks a bit how the pieces connect, uh, and giving people a great experience that saves money and mm-hmm. and enables them to to get the, the the services they need. Because when you zoom out, like a genetic test versus hepatitis C management versus getting someone in for you know their PSA or their CT scan, there's actually a lot more similarity there than not. It's almost mm-hmm. like to me is, you know. Like a you know, very you know in a very uh, self-serving you know comparison I make is like you know the early days of Amazon we all thought of it as a bookstore, but while bu- building the bookstore, they were also building the real thing they were building was the you know merchandising website, the payment system, the logistics for delivery, like all of those components actually you know once they added CDs, it felt like a very big step. But you know you fast forward you know every incremental you know dimension you add in the service you you the the delta is less and less over time mm-hmm. um and so that's really i think for us like i think there's a lot more of healthcare that pattern matches against you know things that should be cheap should be simple should be fast should be highly accessible <laughs> uh and that's really the part of healthcare i think that really fits in our identity and we've kind of embraced that more and more over time um you know uh i don't think we'll be running you know surgery centers anytime <laughs> soon, right? Like, you know, I think we're really focused on the kind of what are things where you can like, where it just makes no sense with today's technology and today's, you know, you know, world for things to be, you know, inaccessible and, you know, painful to use and so on. And so that's really, I think what ends up being, I think the least common denominator behind what we do. You know, you have this tech background and product background. I mean, how do you think about where the incumbent tech companies are, are playing in healthcare? I mean, obviously we've seen Amazon yeah. take a number of big steps forward and back and retrench a couple times, but it, it would appear between one medical and the pharmacy that they're here to stay at least for yeah. now. But, you know, when you think about Google, your former employer and Microsoft, you know, what do you think their aspirations are ultimately in healthcare? Is it to be a provider of services or, or do they think they ultimately want to move a little bit more like Amazon into actual care delivery? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's actually really interesting to see the, you know, the big tech companies um, having very different strategies, right? Like, and 
I mean, a lot of it, I think, ties to also their their own identities, right? right? Like, you know, Apple's work has been really around, like, you know, the Apple Health and the devices and making their Apple Watches better and better and, you know, trying to make your phone, like, the switchboard for all of your data, right? Um, that's been kind of the core play. You know, I, I think, you know, for, for most of them, I think, you know, when they zoom out, it's like, okay, a fifth of the U.S. economy. Uh, and also a place where there's a huge amount of inefficiency, so it feels like a very big... Mm-hmm. You know, opportunity set. Um, I think when they have tried to take it on in a like, there's kind of serving the industry, right? Like, you know, doing things around like you know AI and machine learning, what you know both Google and Microsoft are doing. Um, you know, software infrastructure services. I think that totally makes a lot of sense. It's very first derivative for from their mm-hmm. work, right? Like the same way they would serve the finance industry, they're sure. serving healthcare industry that way. Um, on the flip side, kind of like you know, opening the lid and jumping into the, into the, into the pool, you know, uh, you know, Amazon has been, I think the, the main, main one to do that. Uh, and, you know, but, but also in part, because I think they have a very analog retail DNA to, mm-hmm. to, to the company. And so what well, matches that fee for service yeah, transactional basis. Exactly. That, right. That like we talked about before in, in the said, I think they're the ones that even though they're, they're, you know, classified as a tech company, they're, you know, just a logistics company that happens to also do a lot of amazing technology, and, and that's another way to look at them. And mm-hmm. so, I think for them, like that, it's much more a first derivative of where they where they come from. Um, you know, I, I do think like the payments and financial infrastructure side. I'm I am quite surprised, frankly, that that has not been an all out like you know, um, kind of. Uh, assault by some of the really big, big players who, whether it's on the tech side or on the finance side, mm-hmm. right? Like, I think that's another, you know, um, I mean, they, there was that, that attempt with JP Morgan, Amazon, right. et cetera. The Haven example. Yeah. and um, But I think, I wonder if it's one of those situations where, you know, to beat an incumbent, you have to change the game. Uh, you can't show up and play the same game. That's, uh, you know, it's almost like, you know, you know, Microsoft beat IBM not because they made better mainframes, but because the desktop computer became relevant. Google, right. when Google beat Microsoft, it was not because they made better OSs or better, you know, desktop, you know, productivity apps. It's because the, you know, search became the game to to win. And then when Facebook beat Google at social, it was not because they beat them at search. It, I think right. it's, and I feel like it's kind of that type Somebody of. Somebody has to find a new lane. Yeah, exactly, and also redefine the game that matters. Um, and so, to me, that's also kind of like where, like, rethinking a bit, like. Just our basic assumption is like, wait, should all of healthcare be thought of as an insurance product? Maybe that doesn't make sense, right? Like in some ways, I think that's implicit in like Amazon and Walmart's behavior so far. Is mm-hmm. like, I think I don't know if they think of it in those terms, but I think that is actually some of the most interesting underlying thread there. So, you know, we've been talking about this journey, and you ta- you mentioned that you started Color ten years ago with your co-founders. As we think about the next ten years, what yeah. are your aspirations? You know, both for the company and, and yourself. You know, we've talked about a little bit about fundraising, and and you have some pretty big, well-known investors behind you. I mean, could we see a IPO or a transaction down the road? What is your ultimate goal? Yeah. Uh, so first of all, we're very lucky that we're super well capitalized in this environment. So I'm like, you know, I think we have years and years of very good runway at this stage. So <laughs> it's uh, you know, having uh, you know, done many fundraisers over time, it's like you know, and you know, uh, this is my fourth uh, fourth startup, and you know the. Doing going through that process in, in you know in in, in uh, when uh, in these kinds of times is always uh, very challenging for folks and but when I look at forward you know I think there is a at the heart of what we are trying to do is a bet that there is the opportunity to build a kind of care delivery system that is more vertically integrated for like mass use applications and you know we've we've proven that to work. At massive scale, right? Like you know, during, for example, for the pandemic, you know, we spun up over thirteen thousand sites um, in a year and a half, right? Like that's more than there are Walgreens in the United States, and those were like schools, workplaces, churches, like liquor stores, like it was. And, and it's actually possible to deliver lightweight, very cost-effective, and you know, accessible healthcare in that kind of model. And so for us, like the bet is like we think it is possible to build this kind of care delivery system for, again, not for acute care, 
but for the baseline healthcare that in the with a modern technology stack. Like today, there's no, aside from the, the, the what we've built, there is no EMR for population or public health, right? Like if you want to get a care service, you know, and you go to a hospital, it's like you are, everything is designed around the, you know, it was, you used to have a building with all the doctors in it. And when we went How to an we generate a bill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and the building kind of like that, even if you're not, Today you can get the service outside of the building through technology, but it is still like you are still in the building digitally, mm-hmm. right? Like, and it's like, how do you make a version of healthcare that is able to show up, you know, in a poultry farm, you know, where most people don't speak English, right? Like, and serve them for something very simple, but still have it be a robust, you know, care delivery where the you know the records are kept, like all the reporting is made, you know, it's very accessible, you know, like it connect it can connect to other parts of the system. That is, I think, a, a very big part of, I think, this rebuilding opportunity that um, in many ways, I think, got jump-started through the pandemic uh, or, or accelerated, at least, um, that, you know, I think, um, you know, I'm obviously very biased, but I think it, there is a, a very large business to build doing that. And I think one that can, you know, have a very big human impact as well as, uh, I think, save just a lot of money. You know, it's like a lot of waste, I think, happens from all of the kind of transactional overhead from all the different layers uh, when when you can just, you know, deliver more of a value-based care service, you know, that, uh, you know, rethinks what the transaction really is about, so. So stay tuned, I think is the short Yeah, answer. yeah, so we're, you know, we're hard at work. I mean, like, and, but I think like, you know, the um, the program we have the with the American Cancer Society um, is, a, is a very good example of that, right? Like, mm. you know, just like this rebundling and, you know, it's kind of, uh, and uh, a, a model where you can just not add, not try to add more services in or like more kind of costs into the system, but rather, you know, really think about it as like, how do I just, you know, deliver this outcome that by now there, you know, there's basic consensus over, right? Like it's kind of an being able to buy that directly as opposed to, you know, buy all the pieces that are supposed to add up to that and hope that you get the outcome that you want. So, um, I mean, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this already, but like, I have I have not yet met a single head of benefits, and this is like you know cancer is the number one or number two cost for mm-hmm. most people, and healthcare after salaries for most employers is the number one cost, right? And I have not met any head of benefits who knows with any level of resolution what is my colonoscopy or mammography rates across my population, and and you have you know these big employers who have like. You know, for example, people th- think of tech companies as being just like, you know, a bunch of w- highly paid nerds in Silicon Valley. But, you know, these big tech companies will have like tens of percents of their workforce that are working in data centers, mm-hmm. you know, far out in, you know, the backcountry in Oregon or elsewhere. And they, you know, they look more like an industrial workforce in, uh, for part of their, you know, in terms of access, in terms of income and so on. And most of these heads of benefits literally do not, cannot get information like as simple as like, what percentage of everyone who should get a colonoscopy or a lung CT scan in the last year has gotten it? Like, just that resolution is not, is not there right now. What do you think those numbers wind up being for a big employer? Is it? Oh, is I it, mean, is so... Pain, is it a, a painful number to see? Oh, it's, 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 it's pretty bad. I mean, the, you know, when you think about, you know, so lung is the worst one with 6%, but, you know, prostate cancer screening PSAs are, you know, oftentimes in the 50s, depending on the population. It's actually the largest um, equity gap from a um, screening rate, stage of diagnosis, and treatment outcomes between black and white men mm-hmm. in the United States in healthcare. And um, uh, uh, I mean, for most of them, it tends to be in that, that 50%. Wow. You know, um, there's oftentimes a bit of a sleight of hand that gets made when those numbers get reported where it's like over the last three years, but that's not guidelines. Uh, right, it's like uh, so. You know, even even when you overcount it, when you say over the last three years, for most populations, it's like say seventy percent of women will have gotten a mammography in the last three years. But if you're like who actually were compliant to the, with their guideline itself annual, it's like it's usually fifty percent at best. Wow. Yeah. So it's you know again, it's like and that's already covered. You know, inexpensive, right? Like it's it's one of those where, you know, if, if we you know you know in in a model where you have someone who's accountable for it, right? Like that is the first thing you would want to be doing, right? Like and mm-hmm. measuring. So, um, so that's kind of like you know and the way we again. I think that's uh, taking a very similar approach to cancer, very similar approach to cardiovascular health. Uh, 
you know, similar approach for infectious diseases on the public health side. So um, I think a lot of these are, again, like just, yeah, just that, uh, bundling things in a simple way. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm excited <laughs> and, uh, to see how yeah, your, your so. playbook uh, pans out and, and what you guys do next. One of the ways I like to wrap these conversations up is to ask the leaders to you know, think about a, a lesson or two that they've learned in their life, both on the business side and on the personal side, that maybe steers you know how you run the company or yeah. your interactions with people. And you've worked at a lot of great places and been a leader for more than a decade. You know, What lessons do you carry with you every day that, that you'd share with, with our uh, you know, listeners. Yeah, one one lesson that actually uh, kind of ties to some of the question you've asked, questions you've asked before is, um, I've seen it play out, but I've also uh, kind of it really got crystallized for me in reading a book called Super Forecasters. I don't know if you've ever read it. I haven't. But it's about a, a study about a group of people who tend seem to be exceptional at forecasting the accurately forecasting relatively on you know um, stochastic outcomes, but where the data is very diffuse. Mm-hmm. And the two biggest lessons there were that. In the way we internalize information and react to it, we make two errors that are basically the opposite, and all of us do that. Like one is when we when we have an expectation of an outcome, like for example, you know, I expect it to rain today, and when there's incremental data points that disagree with our expectation, we tend to write them off uh, as outliers. And the people who are really good at forecasting, anytime there's a data point on either side, let their expectation drift a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, so they course correct. Yeah, they, you course correct like slightly, you know, you let yourself kind of drift in one way or the other. And then the other side is that once in a while, there will be a change where that is actually a pretty fundamental rebasing of your expectations. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, you know, the sky was blue and all of a sudden there are storm clouds above, you know, it, it, it there's a, uh, a moment where it's like, okay, Actually, there's a very meaningful change in expectations, and I should like m- most of us tend to have a very viscous or kind of sticky mm-hmm. uh, expectation, um, and don't snap to okay. Let, let's reassess right now, and I feel like that's actually. And when I think about a color, like some of the most important decisions we made, for example, even actually early uh, pandemic, we reacted very fast and decisively. In part, that it was that thinking where it's like, I mean. This is a new variable that was completely outside of anyone's expectations a month mm-hmm. ago, um, and it seems to be big enough that it is unlikely that you know most people will be overreacting. I think most people will be underreacting in mm-hmm. early on. Maybe later people overreacted, so but like you know, on that. yeah. And so just kind of being able to be decisive. I mean, I think right now, like you know, for example, with you know AI and machine learning, I do think like we are living through one of those moments, right? That's very similar. That's kind of like. There is a rebasing, I think, of like you know how the world fundamentally can or is working, um, that I think can change, you know, or should influence how people think, you know, pretty pretty meaningfully. And so, um, so that's kind of this one lesson I feel like I've taken, and I try to kind of uh, the, the other way I call that internally, uh, you know, is I call it embrace the entropy. It's like mm-hmm. when something changes, you know, or there's some randomness, is like, you know, our default is to try to kind of first like. You know, escape. You know, escape it or ignore it, as opposed to kind of like actually, you know, go towards it. So, <laughs> no, that was great. I have a I have a homework assignment now after after. It's it's podcast, a great book. So yeah, I'll say you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Alvin. Well, thank it's you been for a pleasure having uh, having you on. I'm I'm very glad that you made the jump from tech and uh, product to healthcare. Your excitements uh, and uh, vigor for the the subject matter is amazing. And hopefully, we can have you back on in a couple of years and see where you guys are.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.